Well, that wasn't any better. Good morning. Welcome to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. If you were hoping that a fresh week and a fresh series changed the fortunes of the Toronto Blue Jays, you have been left wanting. Losers of six of nine coming into yesterday. Toronto Blue Jays draw a hot but maybe overperforming Miami Marlins team. They have Jose Brios on the mound, who's been one of their most reliable pitchers this season. 11-0. Maybe I should have just started with something Ernie Clement related because that's where this game went. He pitched. He is now 16th out of 20 Toronto Blue Jays pitchers this year and wins above replacement. I am not joking. That is a real stat. Um, Things did not go well for the Toronto Blue Jays. Brian Hoeing starts for Miami Marlins. What's supposed to be a bullpen day. He ends up going four innings, three hits, no walks, no runs, career high, five strikeouts. Jays get nothing off the bullpen from there. The most they threaten is in the fourth when they have back-to-back singles to lead off an inning from Dalton Varsho and Bobochet. And then Vlad hits the hardest double play ball of the stat cast era. Again, not joking, real stat. Who cares? But it is the hardest hit double play ball uh, that we have data for. And that was it. Jays got six singles, a double, no walks. 0 for 6 with runners in scoring position. The only other time they really threatened is Dandy Jansen had a leadoff double uh, and got stranded. On the other side, Jose Brios struggled. In the third, it was the Miami Marlins doing what the Miami Marlins have done a lot this year, which is uh, Luis Arise singles. And then Jorge Soler hits a two-run home run. They piled on a little bit more from there. In the fourth, Brios loads it up with a walk, a hit batter, and a single. Eventually allows two more runs. For the first time since April 8th, Jose Brios fails to make it at least five innings. Gives up five earned over four innings. Scatters 10 base runners, a home run. Doesn't have it with the fastball or with the, the slurve, really. Trent Thornton, who had just gotten called up to, to give the bullpen some length, gave him two relatively clean innings. And then the Jays went back to Nate Pearson. Pitching on back-to-back days. He'd just been shelled on Sunday. He got shelled again. Making eight earned runs over one inning over those two days enough to increase Nate Pearson's ERA by almost three runs. Mitch White made an appearance. And then, yeah, Ernie Clement, his third career appearance as a pitcher. If you were wondering why he was still on the roster, uh, what his utility was, that's it. The Blue Jays basically carrying an extra bullpen arm um, because he's now seen the field as much as a pitcher as he has as a position player, basically. If you weren't going through it as a Blue Jays fan, the story of this game would have been that Luis Arise had a five-hit game. It's the 38th time that's happened against the Blue Jays in their history. The first since Cedric Mullins did it. It's the third time this month Luis Arise has a five-hit game. It is pretty remarkable. Uh, The record for a season is four. Ty Cobb, Stan Musial, Tony Gwynn, Ichiro Suzuki have done it for five hit games in a season. Louisa rise might finish it up this series. Like I, I joked with Ben Nicholson Smith yesterday after he, he uh, did the segment with us. I texted him and said, Hey, it's pretty cool that uh, on Wednesday's game, which is a 12 o'clock start, Ben will be doing it with Ben Schulman on the radio. I said, Hey, it's cool. You'll get to call the historic 15th hit of the series for Louisa rise. I thought I was joking. I was not. He has five hits in that one. His batting average now back up to 400 on the season. 
So again, if you're around baseball, that was probably the cool element of that game. Also, it's fun that the Marlins have won 17 of 22. This is their best record through 72 games since 1997 when they won the World Series. If you listen to Jays Talk Plus, you probably don't feel very good for them because the Blue Jays, on the other hand, have lost seven of their last 10. They continue to go through it. They're now one game away from a potential fourth series loss in a row. It's a, it's a stretch for positives right now. One positive, though, is that we have Ben Wagner on the show today. He is the voice of your Toronto Blue Jays, usually on Sportsnet 590, the fan, and the Sportsnet Radio Network. But for last series and for this series, that's been the case on the Sportsnet television side. Ben Wagner, good morning. How are you? Good morning. How are you? I, I've been better. I've done more positive and upbeat shows, that's for sure. <laughs> what about you? Yeah, well, get ready for a week, it seems like, right? Off the on the heels of what was Baltimore and then Texas and and now a very, very sluggish start to this series in Miami. Uh that was a little bit of a surprise. You know, a bullpen day by the Marlins who who do have good pitching. Not gonna not gonna discount what they have been able to to piece together over the course of the season. They've got some very nice role players, but I did not see that steamroller come in last night. I don't think the Blue Jays did either. I don't think they saw Brian Hoeing coming. I, I don't think, I, I don't know how, but apparently they didn't see Luis Arise coming. Um, look, we, we've got to bounce back today. So the, the primary question on my mind, Ben, is did you get that Lone Depot Park Cuban coffee that I was telling you about? Did you manage to find some? And are you going to be able to find some to recharge today? If, if it exists, I did not find it. Uh, uh. I, I don't navigate too far out of the press bubble. When it comes to press level slash media dining areas. So if it is in the ballpark, I, I need to search it out. But um, it was perhaps something that existed pre, you know, whatever the last few years have been for a lot of us. <laughs> um, it, it was we, we traveled here in 2018. And I remember the nice little coffee station in the back of the media dining room. Uh, but I do have I do have some positive news. It was the same machine that you tap the screen to operate. Uh, that we have a Rogers Center. So I was very mm. familiar with the product. <laughs> there we go. Eh? <laughs> I, I know the process. Um, you'll need it today, man. You'll need it today. Bounce back. And then tomorrow you've Couple got the, them, the noon yeah. game after the after the 640 start tonight. I, okay. So last night, uh, a lot goes wrong. There's not even, I don't even think in in one like that, you could even stretch for, for positives. Um, a pretty bad time for Jose Brios to have what was, it's maybe not his first bad start since then, but it's the first time he hasn't gone five-plus innings since April 8th. He'd become kind of the model of consistency for the Blue Jays. We can, of course, give any pitcher a pass for, for the odd one-off rough night, but what didn't work for Jose Barrios last night? I mean, it's not his fault that it comes at a poor time, but it really came at a poor time. Yeah, you know, there there are a couple of maybe far outlier silver linings that you could find from that ball game last night. Bo gets to 100 hits on June 19th. That's maybe a stretch. Um, you know, offensively, Spencer Horowitz looks like he has a great approach at the plate and has an idea, does not look overmatched at all offensively. Um, but then, it, you know, it, it certainly teeters off when you get away from the offense talking points there. From Jose Barrios, a guy that 
through the last dozen starts has been as dominant as anybody in recent memory for the Blue Jays on the mound. And, yeah, you give guys reprieves, but certainly you don't want to have their their worst day when you need them the most. And that was the case because the bullpen was depleted. Trevor Richards had thrown a lot. Adam Simber had thrown a lot. Um, yeah, honestly, you know, Bowden Francis was somebody that certainly wasn't on the short list because he was optioned back. So you knew that they needed depth, and that's why they asked Trent Thornton to come up from AAA Buffalo yesterday. Mitch White made an appearance. I was really surprised to see Nate Pearson pitch on back-to-back days, even though it could have been, you know, a really uh, call it a springboard if he would have rebounded from that outing in Texas. Could have been a nice little boost for him in what was, you know, looking like a bleak moment in the ballgame. But nothing went well. Uh, Back to specifics with Jose Barrios. Location was bad again yesterday. Location with Jose was a big thing last year. Last night's start reminded me of Jose in 2022 when the slurve would dive over the middle of the plate and be able to be barreled up. Fastball command, one didn't have enough life on it. Also then, uh, the fastball command got too much of the plate and, and it got turned around a number of times yesterday. I thought he threw a couple of good sinkers, but not nearly enough to to change the approach of many of the Marlin batters yesterday. And loud contact is loud contact, and it certainly happened quickly. And then that batter round inning, it was fast and furious. Yeah, it was, it was a lot. And so Barrios gets chased after four. I know you had touched on a couple of the relievers there, but I, I wanted to dig down a, a little bit on some of those decisions. Trent Thornton gets the nod. He goes two innings. He allows two hits. He was only at 24 pitches. Now, he hasn't been used as a starter at AAA this year, but he's done two innings fairly regularly. Given the way that game was going and what he was up for, were you a little surprised he didn't get a third inning? Not really, because he's also coming off of injury. Mm. And his last two appearances with AAA Buffalo were by far and away his best. And and people that I talked with within the organization said uh, command-wise and just kind of the the peripheral data on his pitches, the best that they had been over the last couple. So uh, I don't think that they wanted to tax him much further than what he was able to give the Blue Jays last night. Even though if you look at it from 35,000 feet in the air, Would you like to have a bulk guy go out there that's pitching well in one and two, perhaps give you three? Yes, of course, that's the short answer. But you have to play within the pitcher's strengths, too. And last night, I think Trent Thornton Thornton emptied the tank for the Blue Jays. Yeah, and hey, maybe it's something to build off for him if we are reaching for those uh, those thin positives. Uh, you know, two two outings back in, in AAA before this one. Uh, maybe he can build on it from there. Nate Pearson did not have that. Um, the decision to go back to him after he had been touched up Sunday, I, I know, like you said, maybe, hey, here's a chance to get a good inning under you, feel a little better about it. Also, the bullpen was just not in very good um, shape. But when you see Nate Pearson struggle to that degree for a second day in a row, um, I I joked a little earlier, the ERA jumps three points in in the span of like 30 hours. Um, But he is a guy now that, you know, he's made 27 appearances this year. That's more than he's made in a little while here. Um, what do you, Are you seeing anything in Nate Pearson's blip over these last two games? A fatigue component? Uh, hey, you've been a couple times through the league now. There's a book on you. What have you, make, what have you made of Nate Pearson struggling a little bit these last two? I, I thought the fastball was too fat yesterday, mm. to be honest with you. And it looked like 
guys in Texas and in Miami over the last two appearances have been able to pick up the fastball. There, there's not a lot of deception on the heater with Nate right now, and, and that's a little bit of a fallback to where he has been in the past and, and what we had heard over the last couple of years were really his stumbling blocks even in, in the minor leagues that that fastball gets identified whether or not it's 100 miles an hour or at 95 miles an hour when you cannot have a little deception, the full extension, the life, and let's be honest, pitch execution also will factor into that. You can't leave it out over the middle of the plate. So when guys are seeing it and it's diving right over the middle of the dish, that's that's going to result in a problem. And that was the primary reason uh, that I thought Nate struggled yesterday. And it's and it's interesting. Usually when the Blue Jays use Nate out of the bullpen and he goes over 20 pitches, he gets not only one day, the primary example is two days of rest. If you look back in the game logs, usually he gets a couple of days off if he passes 20 pitches. And there have been instances where he flirts, you know, past the 25 pitch mark that he's taken three days. It hasn't happened all that often, but he's taken three days of rest in between. So uh, it was certainly a little bit about a character on his usage. Uh, but there is also a need, and you you manage to win ball games in the big leagues. And if you thought that the matchup, wherever this slot in the in the, the batting order for Miami identified Nate as a good pocket for him to pitch in uh, it certainly didn't pan out for Nate yesterday no and hopefully he can you know get a day or two down here off day Thursday should give the entire bullpen a, a little bit of a reprieve as well as one coming on Monday but those are rest days on Thursday and Monday for right now the Blue Jays have a pretty tired bullpen with a, a night game tonight and a day game tomorrow. Um, ben, what does this thing look like today with Yusei Kikuchi on the mound? They haven't really let him go past five innings, even when he's pitching well over the last little bit. And he hasn't got to five innings on merit at times. What does today look like? Well, today is you you really have to, to wish and hope that Yusei Kikuchi can cover some innings. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see somebody from the length standpoint arrive from AAA Buffalo today. Um, this, this, this is the name of the game that the Blue Jays are in right now. It's going to be yo-yo guys back and forth for coverage from AAA to the big leagues. And now you get into a little bit of a math crunch with who's available and who would have the opportunity, depending on usage in AAA, plus then uh, the 10 days that need to lapse for a guy being optioned back to the minors. But the Blue Jays are hurting. They're, hurt, they're hurting really bad. I would be, again, very surprised if there wasn't somebody as an insurance policy for long relief up behind Yusei Kikuchi today because the numbers speak for themselves. And really the only ask is for Yusei Kikuchi to get through the order twice, maybe, maybe depending on how the lineup matches up with Yusei from a left-handed or right-handed standpoint at the top third that third time. But rarely are you going to ever ask Kikuchi on merit or not, the way that he's been rolling in his best starts even haven't been asked to get that deep. And this is certainly by design. Uh, this is all about positive. This is all about momentum with Yusei Kikuchi. Using it now, here we are to over two and a half months into the regular season. Um, it's, it's time, though, to lengthen the leash because there is an absolute need to, to use the eye test, to be quite honest. Um, 
The eye test, if it tells you that Yusei Kikuchi can continue to pitch in the ballgame, I think you have to pitch him in the ballgame, and then you manage from that that standpoint out just because they don't have enough coverage going into the ballgame today. I guess the one other option is, has, has Ernie Clement pitched his way into higher leverage for you? He only has a 628 <laughs> FIP right now, which is uh, you know not the worst on the team. Uh, the, the only pressure that he's going to deal with is tire pressure. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, nobody, and I know the Blue Jays, hate, hate to use position players on the mound. Uh, and now with the rule of you have to be down eight runs, a certain point in the ball game before you can even dip into that. Uh, no surprise that we saw Ernie on the mound yesterday. I just hope he can comb his hair today, you know, the way he was throwing 81 mile an hour darts. Um, Okay, so this game, you know, we've just covered a lot of the 11 that went into that 11-0 score. The zero there is every bit as concerning, and why probably you saw names like, hey, Nate Pearson a second consecutive day, Mitch White a second consecutive day, instead of turning to, by the way, Eric Swanson and Jordan Romano are now the only fresh guys in the bullpen because the Jays haven't been super competitive the last couple of days. That zero looms pretty large and John Schneider spoke after the game about you know stringing a couple hits together with guys on base sooner or later you've got to hit a home run um when you hear quotes like that and you're with this team day in day out Ben what do you have more confidence is going to turn around that this team is going to walk into some home runs or that the runners in scoring position stuff they went 0 for 6 against yes again yesterday is just noise and it will turn around well, the Blue Jays have left more base runners on base than anybody else in Major League Baseball at this point in the season. Uh, they have traffic. They have guys that could be on base, and they have the ability. You know, with this, with the way that the, the Blue Jays' offense has been performing, even recently, they've had traffic. I look back at Texas and so many missed opportunities, and Texas whiffed on a ton of them, especially on Friday night when the Blue Jays were down there. But they were very, very winnable games for the Blue Jays. Uh, when you ask me to define one thing, whether it's consecutive hits together or run into home runs, I think the Blue Jays have a better shot of running into home runs. The lineup is just too good. But you get an underperforming George Springer at this point in the season. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. certainly isn't able to elevate and drive the ball the way that we're accustomed to watching Vladdy hit the baseball. Matt Chapman has completely cratered from where we saw him in April. Okay, so those are three major horses in the middle of the lineup for the Blue Jays uh, that have not been able to perform. And these are the guys you expect to be the major drivers. You're not leaning on guys like Whit Merrifield or even Dalton Varsho or Kevin Kiermeyer. While there have been flashes, and Varsho has been a much better hitter at the plate over the last two weeks than what he was the first month and a half of the regular season, uh, there are encouraging signs there. But again, he's a great piece to implement around the big boys, around the guys that should be able to drive in the runs. Now, I don't think Matt Chapman is going to hit 300 this season. I have no 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 falsehoods about that. But what I do what I do think is that he would have a little bit less swing and miss and the ability to go gap to gap for the Blue Jays. And with that, then come the home runs. I thought the most encouraging thing for Chapman was the change in his mechanics at the plate through spring training. He found a rhythm right at the tail end, and it carried right into the regular season. And a lot of that progress was driving the baseball the opposite way and seeing that line drive approach and the ball get deep that we've watched Bo kind of implement and everybody else try to mimic over the last handful of years. Uh, Those are the things that 
I would expect to turn around from a long ball's perspective for the Blue Jays. And then everything else is a benefit. If you're looking for, if you're looking to string together hits consecutively in the lineup, then you got to have Whit Merrifield in the lineup. Hmm. Um, Joe and I were both stunned yesterday that Whit was not on the card. Uh, I mean, absolutely stunned. And he's healthy. It was likely just a scenario where there was load management. Um, you know, it, it looked like Whit, and not not when the game got out of hand. Um, certainly, but Witt was available to play yesterday. And if, if you're tr- struggling to score runs and you're trying to manufacture some runs and you think the consecutive hits are, are it, well, I, I believe you have to have Whit Merrifield in the lineup then. Yeah, I mean, he's hitting better than pretty much anyone on this team over the last month. I know Bo's... Guy's going to be an all-star. Yeah, yeah. He, and on top of which, you know, runs the bases at a level that... I don't think anyone else on this team does either. Um, a, a, a trickle down question for you related to load management. There is an off day Thursday and an off day Monday. And yes, there's a, a day game after a night game on uh, Wednesday this week. So there's at least one spot within that where we'd probably expect to see Tyler Heineman and maybe two. Maybe he gets the, the Saturday or Sunday on the weekend as well. But how much is this team willing to ride Danny Jansen? Not just because his bat's hot right now, but because like we saw when Jansen was on the I.L., they'd really prefer not to go to Heineman too much. They No, they don't prefer to go to Heineman, but there are some clear indicators to me that they will go mm-hmm. to Tyler Heineman uh, a couple of times here in the short. And the good news is with the laceration, couple of stitches for Alejandro Kirk, he's going to need to miss four, five, six days anyway before he could even pick up the bat. Uh, now with the stitches going in there, they had to put him on the IL. Mm-hmm. But the scenario works out pretty well for Heineman and his battery mate. He caught Kevin Gosman already this season. He caught him with San Francisco, so that's a good comfortability. And then the comfort with that is the fact that Danny Jansen, you know, was really behind the plate for most of Yusei Kikuchi's success at the start of this season. So even though when Jansen went on the injured list, of course, that got shaken up. But to get that pairing back tonight, I think would be the no-brainer. And then you could have Heinemann catch the noontime nine game tomorrow that will rest Danny Jansen, which there is some concern, right? He's Mm -hmm. still relatively fresh, just a week off of the groin injury. So he's coming back off the injured list. So, I mean, without a doubt, you've got to get guys the proper rest, especially if you're monitoring early return to play which we're doing with Danny Jansen and a sensitive area with every backstop there's a lot of up and down there are a lot of pitches in the dirt certainly last night he had to do a lot of work down in the dirt uh, with the way that the pitching was going for the Blue Jays so he's taxed and he's going to be taxed but he's also the primary catcher you know he's built for that he's built to play in the mud and get down there and get dirty and catch probably five six days a week but I think the way that the schedule plus the off days this will afford Heinemann to get a nod tomorrow afternoon in the finale against the Miami Marlins catch one of the ball games over the weekend and with the off days that really will limit the workload on on Jano yeah and for Jansen you know hey uh, I'll tell him this not personally but if you are getting that off day you get ready to pinch hit at some point because the way he's swinging (laughs) the bat they probably can't sit him down 
uh, too, too long. Um, ben, on the, you know, to, to circle back to, to the hitting for a second here, um, we, we, you went through kind of Matt Chabin and, and hey, Whit Merrifield should have been in the lineup and things like that. I think we can all agree that this lineup would feel a little differently if Vladimir Guerrero Jr. were hitting at the level that we've seen him hit at for chunks of time before. Um, you look at some of the, you know, the stat cast or baseball savant stats, and he's right up there among the very league leaders in, hey, expected versus actual, there's a big gap here. And we know that over the course of a season for a lot of players, that tends to balance out, but not universally. Ronald Acuna Jr. last year dealt with a weak knee thing coming off of a knee injury, and his numbers never quite got to you know where we expected them to be now he's also gone absolutely bonkers this year so maybe that's a that's a positive sign but when you know we we've done the vlad thing before where the expected stats and the batted ball data and yes yesterday he hits he hits the hardest hit double play ball in the stat cast era um it, does it hit a certain point where you know you personally or just you know us generally where there's an impatience with with waiting for those things to catch up well, the most important person in that is the most important and most impatient person, <laughs> and that's Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Look at his body language. Yeah. Uh, he's feeling it. He's pressing. He knows how important he is. Uh, of course, he has his own personal goals, and in the line of competition, when you do certain things or you feel that you made the best contact you can, and John Birdie, man, he pulls a rabbit right out of his hat last night, and nets a double play ball around the horn, which was incredible. Um, it was a look what I found moment, you know, uh, and I think Birdie would even admit to that when we see him on the field later today. But it, the bottom line is the ball's not carrying as much as what it has for Vladimir Guerrero Jr. He's not spraying the line drives like he has. This, this reminds me right now of the rut that we had with Vladdy in 2019 where you got a lot of hard contact, but you got a lot of hard contact about 20 to 50 feet out in front of home plate. And, yeah. you know, when you dive it into the turf, it becomes a hard ground ball. And that's the bottom line. We're not seeing Vladdy locked in. You know, Vladdy, Vladdy talks about when he's on time, the explosiveness of his lower half. And it's a timing thing, right? you got to have the load. Joe, Joe Siddle the last couple of days has really talked a lot about the hands and his hand placement with that load. Uh, I, I just hearken back to what we saw in spring training, honestly, this year, let alone what we were seeing in spring training and then what we were all witness to in 2021. And that was an explosive lower half. That was an incredible amount of balance and an incredible amount of power thrusting through the torso, the drive of the hips, and then that lower half just incredibly incredibly whipping the bat through the zone and that is the lag right now of Vladimir Guerrero Jr. It started last year with the lower half and then the hands dragging. You know, I talked to some people in the organization, they said, you know, the the hands just aren't as quick coming through the zone. And I think that's been the overarching fight for Vladdy now this year and through parts of last year and without Without everything in sync, without everything driving the bat, this is what we're going to get. And, and Marcus Simeon had the greatest reaction when we were in Texas about Vladdy. Be yeah. like, geez, this guy and the amount of pressure that he's having to deal with. He's hitting in the, the 280s. Yeah, you're not seeing the home runs. He's got a, a very, very good and solid OPS. But Marcus is just like, just let the man hit. You know, just like take the pressure off him. Stop talking about him. If it was only that simple, right? Because hmm. everyone knows the importance of 
Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and his drive right in the top third of this Blue Jays lineup. Yeah, and it would be one thing if Vlad were hitting like this and the Jays were winning a lot of ball games and producing runs as a team, but there is a team element factor and the context around him uh, as well. Ben, you mentioned uh, Joe, Joe Siddle there. Um, first of all, you got, I, I got to listen to you guys. I was on the radio calls on the weekend, so I didn't get to, to listen to you guys on TV. I listened last night. You guys sound phenomenal together. Uh, just uh, from a, a personal level and like an inside baseball level, how are you enjoying the, the switch over to TV for these series? I know you did a bunch in spring and you've done it before, but um, how, how has this been for you? Oh, this is the longest runway I've ever had on television. So it's, it's incredible. Um, it's, it's what people don't realize is how many working parts there are behind the scenes. Um, you know, to peek back behind the curtain, you've got people working over your head and under your feet almost <laughs> right up until the anthems, you know, especially on day one of, of a series when you're coming into a town and your cruiser is trying to set up the booth and get everything rolling. So there's a lot of activity, not only for people that are locally based, whether it's a crew in Texas, a crew here in Miami. Uh, we'll see a lot of the Sportsnet guys once again when I'm doing the series with Buck against the Oakland Athletics starting on Friday night. Uh, but in that truck, you know, there are dozens of people that are relying on your timing. And this show would not go off without great leadership. And that leadership starts with early morning emails and thought ideas, whether it's Joe Siddle looking for video on player breakdowns, whether it's the producer. And we had Chris Black when we were in Texas. We've got Jacob Clark. Uh, the great Doug Walton will be on with us in Oakland. You know, these minds, you know, circle ideas that's swirling around from one game to the next. They're looking from everything from uh, what is now with the Blue Jays to what will get this as an interesting broadcast and the game is going to dictate where we go but make no bones about it i mean we don't go in with a roadmap saying in the third inning we have to do this um that is certainly not the case we look for storylines and how to then provide the pictures that go along with them hazel does an incredible job in the human interest elements and where what what nuggets she can mine on the sidelines and i really enjoy kind of implementing her her own take on things, her own stories, and then weaving it back into the broadcast booth like we were able to do the last couple of nights. Um, and, and some of the stuff just falls in your lap. And I hope we do, I hope there's a moment where we can get this on without it being forced. Tommy Hutton is sitting three feet from me on the other side of the glass in the broadcast booth with the Miami Marlins. Um, he is the only player and only person on the planet to play for the Expos play for the Blue Jays, broadcast for the Expos, and broadcast for the Blue Jays. So uh, he's done He's done double duty, uh, or, or as I call him, he's a repeat, repeat offender. <laughs> I saw him in the press box yesterday. You know, so these are, these are the kind of things that I really enjoy bringing to light. And while radio provides an incredible canvas to paint pictures and bring the listener with description into a very intimate setting, with an audio component to it, which I love. I have a passion of it. It's how I cut my teeth. And just by the nature and the longevity of my business, you know, there is certainly a deep desire for me to broadcast baseball on the radio, and I love doing it. But this is certainly a great professional challenge for me, and I love working with people. I love talking with people, and that's the reason that I roll out of bed in the morning, mm. um, is to provide all the hard work that is going on behind the scenes, and it's already underway. <laughs> Looking at my email inbox right now, trust me, uh, is to somehow weave it within the confines of the game, 
highlight Joe Siddle and the amazing analysis that he provides. And man, he's just so awesome to work with. Um, and you know what? Bring bring our unique energy, our unique perspective, and get the show off the ground and let the ball game take us on a ride for you know two or three hours. Well, like I said, I think you and Joe sound terrific together. And whether it's, I mean, it's both of you guys, of course, but all the people chipping in. And I, I was on that Chris Black analytics email this morning, too. You know, he was up earlier than any of us because he's got a tea time. So, uh, yeah, a he lot got of the prize for the earliest email. <laughs> he did. A lot of hands in there. Um, have another great call tonight. And I, I hope sincerely that the Blue Jays give you a, uh, a roadmap to a more fun game to call tonight, Ben. I would love a winning addition of Blue Jays baseball, without a doubt. Hopefully it gets back on track. All right. Ben Wagner, voice of the Toronto Blue Jays on Sportsnet 590, the fan, the Sportsnet Radio Network, and for a couple series here, Sportsnet Television. We're going to take a break. When we come back, Lance Brzezdowski, he's a player development analyst for Marquee. He used to be with Driveline. Uh, he's got a daily Substack and YouTube breakdown of you know pitch mechanics and pitch shapes and things like that. He's got a lot of thoughts on Toronto Blue Jays, good and bad, including on Yusei Kikuchi, who we'll see tonight. Uh, Lance Brzezdowski joins us next on Jay's Talk Plus on Sportsnet 590 The Fan and Sportsnet 360. Everything Raptors before and after the games. The Raptor Show with Will Liu. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy, Toronto Blue Jays, going through it a little bit. See if Yusei Kikuchi can get them back on track. Yusei Kikuchi, whose slider sometimes looks a little bit too much like a cutter. Lance Brzezdowski joins us now. He's a player development analyst for Marquee, uh, formerly of Driveline. He's Lance Braz on YouTube and Substack, a terrific Substack newsletter that kind of goes through some of what Lance is seeing night to night in terms of what most interests him with pitch design and pitch mixes that pitchers are, are going through. Uh, Lance, good morning, man. How are you? Blake, what's up, man? Thanks for having me. Um, so a little curious about your career path because you and I have, have kind of similar ones. You've got a BA, you've got an MJ, you've been at baseball prospectus and hardball times. I personally was fan graphs yeah. and hardball times. How do you end up down a path where, I mean, I think from your resume, it's pretty clear you want to go into the sports media route, but you end up specifically being on kind of in this kind of player development niche and pitch design niche. How did you find yourself um, specifically in that area? That's a good question. Yeah, I think I stumbled into it. I mean, I actually, that BA was an accounting background. So I've always been kind of comfortable with the numbers, I would say. And I think that maybe led me to what was going on, on the advanced side, especially with baseballs that started to develop and a lot more data and information started to come in with the pitch FX era and everything that's going on with StatCast. So from there, it kind of took off. I mean, I just have always loved the sport. I grew up on the minor leagues too. So I think I've always been interested in that, that development angle, so to speak. And that kind of pushed me to driveline um, where I was a video editor remotely. So I got pretty good exposure to TrackMan outputs, which essentially teams look at to understand what a pitcher is doing in a given outing and, and on an individual pitch. I also got the main thing I learned there was just how many people, you know, are, excuse me, how relationships are really, really important to the space and understanding what's going on. I, I, that's mainly the main thing I got. I, I now have communication with a lot of major league coaches, um, that were former driveline because driveline graduated so many people from that organization. So I, it's really just a matter of, it's a confluence of a variety of things, liking the minor league, being comfortable with data, really liking the, 
thought process around how players get better and almost understanding that I'll never find an answer, but it's fun to try. Hmm. Yeah, it is fun to try. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's obviously how players get better can come from a couple different points, right? You can come to it from, well, this thing is working and how do we make sure it stays working and how do we take it to another next, to another level? Or you can have a more of a blank slate and be like, okay, how can we add to this? And then the one that is most frustrating, but maybe at least in my estimation, most fascinating is, Hey, this thing isn't working. How do we fix it? Um, when you are coming at some of those problems, whether it was in your time, at driveline helping out there or you know your articles in your sub stack do you do you have a, a preference on like what is more fulfilling to you the kind of finding a good thing and finding out what makes it worth work versus trying to fix a, a negative it's a great question I, I was thinking about this and i actually last night when I, I got some of the the prep notes for this and i you know i was wondering like i think the problem i run into sometimes with identifying a flaw like if a picture's pitching poorly and I'm digging through the data, which I tend to do pretty much every morning. It's run through the prior starters from the day and, and kind of poke around and see what I could find. Um, one of the main things there that I run into is a little bit of bias around looking for something like confirmation bias. I'm looking for something to understand, say, why Corbin Burns has been tough this year or what's going on with Sanio Contra. And sometimes when you don't get a very direct answer, like, oh, the velo's down a ton or this is going on, you know, that's a little unfulfilling. And I almost you really have to be self-aware enough to understand that you may not have the answer and what you're looking at. It could just be something you're not getting to. And then that makes for relatively unfulfilling content. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like if my goal is to drive interest and traffic to my channels and stuff, which at the end of the day it is, you know, I, I really enjoy this stuff and I want people to be as entertained by it as I am. That's probably the main thing that I run into is I, I've got, I think I've gotten okay. And I, I hope pretty good at understanding that maybe I don't have the answer in a certain situation. It could be something that I just, you know, maybe it's beyond my purview of, of what I have access to. It could be mechanics, it could be mental, which I think a lot of the time perhaps it is. So I, I would say, I guess, from a blank slate easier, which I, I, you know, I do my YouTube channel a lot. Like, I like looking at guys that are coming up. I consider that more as a blank slate. It's like, hey, we have some, I got some minor league data. Let me take a look at it. And, you know, I'm going to base what I think this guy will be based on the shape I'm seeing and how his performance has been. So that's probably a little easier for me. The flaw standpoint is tough, especially with elite arms. Yeah. And I get what you're saying there, right? The unsatisfying nature of not having an answer. And, you know, most of my media career has been on the basketball side. And it's like, yeah, sometimes you shoot, you know, six of 40 on threes and that's it. And they're good threes. And that, that's about, yeah. uh, that's about, and, and you know, this year with the blue Jays, we've had to go through the Alec Manoa thing and the Vladimir Guerrero yeah. jr. Thing, which, you know, you, you can have theories about them, but there isn't a, isn't a smoking gun. Uh, I'm curious. You, so you mentioned too, you know, you, you naturally gravitate towards the numbers, but you also came up through the minor league system when it comes to, you know, let's be honest, if I'm looking at the, the Vancouver Canadians, the high a team for the Toronto blue Jays in the, in the farm system, I don't really yeah. have a choice, but to scout the stat line, right. And go from there. And then maybe if something stands out, you can kind of, you know, fire up MILB TV and look at it then. And then there's also the layer of at some levels of the minors and we're getting better for that. And now at the majors, certainly you have the pitch data, you, you have the, the, you know, stack cast stuff. And then you guys at, at driveline or, or wherever would have had the, the track man and the rap Soto and all that stuff. How, what, what is the process like for blending those things together and, you know, the value in each, like, like obviously I, I'm not naive to think that one can do the role of all three. Uh, obviously you need all of them, yeah. but how do you find working those, you know, numbers, eyes, and, and then some of the, 
kind of, I, I guess, for lack of a better term, analytics stuff that we have from, from the pitch mechanics uh, side of things. How do you find those interplay together for you? Yeah, to your point, I definitely lean towards the data side, it, you know, and I know there's flaws in that, and I'm, I, and I hope that I'm aware enough to spot them when I run into them, just through my own analysis and stuff like that. And basically, the idea is to not be incredibly confident about anything, you know what I mean? <laughs> like propose ideas and give theories, but like at the end of the day, like I could be wrong, and I'm not the person also at the game scouting the pitcher. I'm not the person watching the guy's entire outing most of the time. It's just too much to consume, you know. So I, I, I fully admit that I lean more towards looking at analytics, I definitely watch a lot of baseball, but you know, it's not always that I land on the pitcher I'm writing about the subsequent day, for example, you know, like that Sandy Alcantara slider tweak that I thought I saw, you know, I wasn't watching that game. I looked at it after the fact and I, you know, I could dig through and look at some pitches and kind of see what I'm seeing, but the in-person stuff's fascinating. I'll I'll give you a little story. When it, you know, I used to watch a ton of minor league baseball and go to games a ton. And that's definitely fallen off now working for marquee and stuff, but I still go. And, now that I have a much better understanding of pitch chase and stuff, what I love doing is going to a game, watching an opposing pitcher, especially when it's like a higher-end prospect, um, and trying to guess what the data will say. So literally trying to guess the specific number of shape on the pitch, so how much is it breaking vertically, how much is it breaking horizontally. I'll guess release height, I'll guess extension, I'll guess some other things, and then go back and look at what's, the, what the data says about that given pitcher and see how spot on I am. That is a really fun process for me. I love doing that now. I wish I had access to this information when I was doing it a ton and through the minor leagues. What I run into a ton is, again, that confirmation bias idea where if I get the data beforehand, then I go scout the pitcher and sit down and watch this entire start, chart it out, and look at what I'm looking at. I run into just confirming everything I saw in the data a ton. But I love when I go without the data in mind, just literally no idea, just the pitcher's name. Like I did this with when I was out in Tennessee covering the Cubs minor league team, Montgomery biscuits were in town to the Rays affiliate. The Rays starter was Cole Wilcox, who was acquired from the Padres. One of the top arms, maybe not the top arm in the system, but like one of the, it's a relevant starting pitcher, you know, starting pitching prospect. So went into that start completely blind, knew of him, had no idea what he throwed, what he looked like, sit down, watch the entire start and look at the data afterwards. Hmm. And you know, most of the time I'm proud at how kind of in the area I am, or honestly the learning that goes on when I realize I'm off by a certain amount in a certain direction. That is cool because it's like, oh, I understand why I'm off and I understand why I might have been thinking this or I understand why that sinker is more run than drop or, you know, the changeup moves a bit differently. It's not separating as much from the pitch I saw. And then you also pick up a lot through the hitters, right? Hitter reaction, you know, we're looking at outputs at, um, for the most part on the pitching side. We look at whiff rate, we look at batted ball quad, et cetera. And the hitter is underlying in those, specific output data points, you know, they're giving you the answer as to how good that pitch is, even if the data doesn't say it's good. So that balance, looking at the data, seeing him in person, seeing what the hitter reaction is really fun. That's one of my favorite things to do now. Um, I don't get to do it a ton, but when I do, I definitely cherish it. So one of the best hitter reactions uh, is generally when Kevin Gosman throws his splitter and guys, you, (laughs) you almost see the look on their face of like, I know I shouldn't swing at this, but I'm going to, and it's going to drop out of the zone. Now I know you, you recently did some research on why on how and why splitters are such an effective pitch. Now they're not on vogue to the extent that everyone throws one and everyone has a good one, but the people who throw a good one are pretty, pretty deadly with them. Kevin Gosman chief among them. When, when you dove into that at a, at a larger sample level, what is it about splitters that stood out to you? And one like Gosman's that's just, you know, not only hard to hit, but so hard to lay off too. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I dug in and talked primarily to coaches and looked a little bit of data myself. I came up with three reasons why 
Uh, first one has to do with movement and velocity. So I, lo- I like thinking of it relative to a changeup, right? Like changeups are thrown by a lot more people, but why are splitters so much splitters? Excuse me, so much more effective. Splitters are generally thrown harder with more drop. That's the key thing if you're trying to generate whiffs in almost any situation. Getting your pitch to drop more, whether it be a slider or a splitter, and throwing it harder is a pretty good way to do that. Number two, it's much less spin. So there's much more rotations on the ball. And for the most part, some theories, these are more theories, but we believe generally in talking to coaches and some other people who look at this stuff a lot more than I do, that lack of spin creates more variance in the pitch. There's more opportunity for the ball to go in directions that maybe the pitcher wouldn't expect or the hitter wouldn't expect. That creates, you know, I guess what you could call late movement, so to speak. Not necessarily sure if it actually is occurring super late in ball flight, but we can say it's late movement. I think that's fair based on how low that, that spin is. That just creates more variance. If you look at the plot of a splitter relative to a changeup for most guys, the splitters are usually very spread out. It's not really consistently moving at, you know, eight inches on side or dropping two inches. You know, it, it's, it's around that, and that'll be an average, but you'll see the plot is kind of a little bit noisier. Um, than it would be, I say, for most changeups. And the third one is just that it's uncommon. There aren't a lot of them. I think it's only about two percent of all pitches in baseball are splitters this year, in particular. That hasn't really changed a ton. Um, that maybe creates some, you know, uh, there's some term here, but creates some effect where you're not seeing the pitch a ton. It's, it's survivorship bias. That's what I'm trying mm. to think of. Where the pitches that are good, you know, the splitters that are good have survived. And if you can't learn a splitter. Then it just isn't you don't you don't get to the point of actually throwing it at the major league level. This is kind of why you have a lot of bad changes in major league baseball, right? <laughs> like we have, it's pretty ubiquitous. So there's a lot of them that are bad. So those are kind of my three reasons. The question is whether if splitter usage goes up, where if you talk to any coaches who are kind of on the sharper side in, in thinking about trends in the modern game, I think the majority of them, I'll even put it over 75%, think that people will start throwing more splitters. And the question is whether these results continue. You know, if it literally being the best pitch at creating weak contact and generating swing and miss in major league baseball over the last couple of years continues when you have maybe guys who aren't throwing the best splitters, or if there's a situation where if you could get to any kind of reasonable splitter in game, it's good. And then that starts to take off and maybe become the sweeper of this year in a couple of years. So those are kind of the three reasons why Gossman's is interesting because he doesn't really split it hard. Like if you look at Kodak saying it from the Mets, Grip, he's literally jamming the ball in between his fingers. Gossman's kind of, it's, it's become like, I guess you could call it like a Fox grip, so to speak. But Goss, Gossman's grip is almost his own category of grip where he's like, he's splitting it between his fingers, but he's not like wedging the ball in between his fingers. He's kind of just creating what you call is almost like disco ball spin where the ball drops if you watch his slow release. And I, I think a lot of people are copying that where it's like, you know, if I don't have the hand size or the ability to kind of separate those two fingers without putting a ton of pressure on my form when that actually happens, let me go towards more of a, like, you'd almost call a fosh or some other kind of grip that just allows the ball to either come off both my fingers or come off one individual finger and kind of spin towards the plate and kill that spin relative to something like a fastball. So there's a lot of variables that go into it. Those are kind of the three that I like the most. And I do think we're going to see kind of a renaissance of this pitch, especially as you see guys add sweepers, especially if you're righty adding a sweeper to kill righties, you know, you have to have something the other way. Splitters, uh, sweepers are not particularly too neutral pitches, so they don't do as well versus righties. If they do lefties, something like a splitter, something that tails away, 
is really good versus either handedness. And I could see a lot of guys using them to lefties particularly. And the Jays have tried to develop that with, with a few guys, whether it's a, a straight splitter or a changeup or, you know, even that kind of two seam sink to it. The, the Jays have tried to, mm-hmm. you know, develop that with a few of their guys at, at the major league and triple a level. Um, so you say Kikuchi pitches tonight. I'm going to pivot off the splitter here and talk about the slider. And Kikuchi mm-hmm. has by his own admission at times that slider has looked more like a cutter and it doesn't get quite the movement profile he wants, maybe throwing it too, too hard. And and it ends up looking more like a fastball. Um, That battle between, you know, I know we could go, we could put it kind of on a scale of like, okay, there's a cutter and then there's a slider and then there's a sweeper and then there's the curve and you can kind of go on like that. Um, What is the challenge for a guy like Kikuchi keeping that slider slidery for lack of a better term? I don't think we have a, slidery is the best we can do here. Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I mean, I definitely would lean towards more listening to a guy like Kikuchi and what he says and some of the coaches and stuff just because I'm not around the team mm-hmm. or the player enough to have my own specific take. But what I will say is that I think I said it earlier in this hit is like, if you're trying to generate swing and miss, you want a, you want drop, you want drop in velocity. And that's kind of the, the balance of cutter to slider, right? Cutter is generally going to have more backspin, more lift. And for the most part, is going to induce as much swing and miss. So that toggle, how much you get behind the ball, so to speak, between slider and cutter is kind of the balance that I think guys try to strike. And you look at any individual pitcher throughout the course of the season, there's probably going to be some variance between getting a pitch with more backspin, you know, and generally as you get more backspin, it's going to be thrown harder. You know, you're trying to apply force to the ball to get behind the ball. By getting behind the ball, you create more backspin. By getting behind the ball, creating more backspin, trying to throw it harder, you go kind of from that slider territory up to the cutter territory. And there's obviously fine lines between that and whatever you want to classify pitch as is, you know, there's a variety of ways to talk about pitch classification, but that's kind of the, the specific balance. So I, I'd be curious of asking Kikuchi what, what the intention with the pitch is, right? The intention with the pitch to generate weak contact as a cutter, which I, you know, for the most part last year, that pitch kind of got beat up, especially when it was had more backspin and more lift to it. Or is the, is the goal to try to get swing and miss with, with a slider? And maybe the goal is either. Maybe the goal is just to command something, you know? And in that case, you know, <laughs> that is going to bring in probably more anecdotal information of, like, which do we think he keeps out of the middle of the play. His in-zone, you know, expected stats are not good. Like, when he's in-zone, it's generally going to get hit really hard at an angle that's going to create a lot of damage. That's probably, I think, one of the main things he's running into. The ERA actually isn't that bad. So he's like a 4-1-3 mm-hmm. um, from what I last saw. But the thing that I thought was interesting in looking – at him year over year, he's done a, a good job in this slider cutter problem of not having a ton of backspin on the pitch, I would say, from the plots I was looking at. The other thing is he kind of added this like deeper curve that's like 84-ish. It's kind of tight. It's not really a true curveball this year, but it, it seems like it's really good from a contact quality standpoint. He's throwing it to either handedness. That particular shape, that, that ability to create a ball that drops as much as kind of a harder curveball at 84 is pretty good, especially opposite handedness. So him throwing it lefty to righty, that's pretty important. So I was pretty encouraged to see that, you know, trading basically those higher backspun cutters that were getting killed or what you'd call again, that slider that has more backspin trading that for a pitch again with more drop. It seems to be working out for him. I, I think maybe that's one of the underlying reasons why the ERA isn't, you know, above five as it's been for the last couple of years for him. But that's kind of the balance of the two. It's one of those things where, you know, I'm not entirely sure what's causing that issue. It could be one of those things where it's just the more you throw an individual pitch, the more comfortable you get with it. He is older. He's 32. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I always think like for the most part, the guys who are older, you know, hang around and thus have better feel. And then when you look at their plots, everything's going to be tighter in terms of moving. You're not going to run into like a Garrett Cole getting behind his, 
his slider too much, you know? So I, that is one of the things that I'm not totally certain on as to why he has maybe more variance than some older pitchers. But, you know, I, it, he's, he's, I imagine as a Blue Jays fan and, and anyone listening is a Blue Jays fan, he's probably been a little difficult to watch the last couple of years. But the results have been better this year, and I like that curveball. So maybe there is a bit of hope. But it's tough to, it's tough to look away from the home run totals for him, ascending each of the last three years. And he's allowing 2.5 per nine this year. It's tough. So he's, he just doesn't miss enough bats in the zone, you know, and I think that's probably one of the primary issues. It is certainly. I mean, anytime you lead the league in home runs, even if you strike every other batter out, it's probably yeah. uh, not good. One last one before I let you go here, because I know I'm running long with you. But, yeah. um, you know, another point of frustration for Blue Jays fans, uh, I'm sure. And you kind of pointed this out. I think it was June 12th or June 13th. You, you in your notes sub stack, you were talking about Mitch White and how he's got kind of two different slidery pitches and that by stuff plus they both look okay uh driveline stuff plus metric but you know hard to let go of trading nick frasso for mitch white um are you seeing any signs of life with, with mitch white I, he's got a i mean it's the tiniest of samples a 450 era out of the bullpen here um he's not we're we're not going to be able to relitigate the nick frasso part of that trade i don't think yeah. but are you seeing any signs of life with with mitch white since he's come back up yeah, I mean, I, again, we'll throw out the Nick Frasso part. I do think there's been some adjustment here. He, he used to throw kind of a sweepy slider that was like 85-ish, 9-inches sweep. You know, the new slider that he started throwing, it looked like a AAA this year. The Blue Jays clearly had some internal interest in adding some kind of harder sliders up to 89 with only 3 inches of sweep. So this is the difference between what you'd say, you know, these both are sliders. If you want to create a big circle and within that, put a sweeper and put a just what you call a gyro slider, but we'll just call it a slider generally. They're both sliders. Everything is a slider in this one. He's just kind of throwing two different kinds of sliders. The newer slider, this one that's harder, with that has less of that sweep, is just kind of kind of look like it's falling off the table whenever you watch him live in a game. It's just it's just drops. You know, that's probably the best way to put it. Stay straight and drops, whereas the other one's going to kind of drift away from a righty. You know, I, it's been an encouraging pitch for the most part, especially the left-handed hitters, which I think is good for for him to not run to massive platoon splits where he's getting killed by lefties. The thing with this particular kind of shape that has less sweep has less of what you call spin-induced movement on the nerd side over here hmm. is that it has to be commanded well. If this pitch is in the zone, it's going to allow more damage than a larger sweeper. So you see, especially the righties, when this pitch is missing arm side, it's getting killed in the zone. So that's kind of the main thing is like, you, I, I talk about it online a lot. A lot of guys add sweepers, then revert back to gyro sliders or this kind of tighter, harder slider. And a lot of people are like, tighter, harder slider is always going to work better. And it's like, again, you have to talk about it in relation to the pitcher and especially in relation to the pitcher's command. These particular shapes that spin more like a football, which is the gyro slider, kind of that football spin going towards the plate, as opposed to thinking more like an offset football that's kind of sweeping away from a hitter, they have to be commanded well. They just allow more damage. If they're in the zone, and that's the, one of the main problems is for the Blue Jays figuring out how to get that harder slider for him just down away to righties or down into lefties and prevent as many of those arm side misses as possible. That's almost always where this particular kind of hard slider gets beat up. You can look at it time and time again across any kind of pitcher in baseball. It's that arm side miss to a righty, right, right, arm side miss. It's just it allows a lot of damage, and I, that's the main concern is just how is the command with the offering. And again, he's still relatively young too, so – if he just gets, or he's 28, but as he gets more comfortable with that offering, as he throws it more, you know, maybe in a year or two, we see this pitch become better commanded for him to become more of a weapon. Um, but really got to watch command with that particular kind of offering. It's not, it's not always the key to opening up a crazy repertoire on a crazy career.
Yeah, we, or otherwise, it, you know, you don't command that a little better. We're headed toward 2023 World Series, you know, Game 7. Mitch White leaves one over the plate. Dod- yeah. The Dodgers hammer it, and then Nick Frasso comes in and strikes out the side. World Series <laughs> over, you know? Um, yeah, that, uh, would be, that would be devastating. <laughs> uh, Lance, thanks so much for taking the time out this morning, man. Keep up all the great work at Lance Bras on YouTube and at Substack uh, and at Mar- over at Marquee. Lance Brasdowski, thanks so much, man. Thank you. Lance Brzezdowski, player development analyst for Marquee. You can catch him on the pregame broadcast for a lot of Cubs games there, uh, formerly with driveline baseball. So a lot of the, the pitch mechanics and pitch design stuff carrying over into his work. And again, the Lance Braz Substack or just his Twitter feed at Lance Braz as well. A great source of, hey, what's going on with, with new pitches and pitches that are elevating or, or, you know, kind of dropping off around baseball night tonight. We're going to take a break. We come back. Kayla McGrath of The Athletic, uh, her and I usually do the concern index. This time we might just, uh, she she had a piece up at The Athletic today. It was like, hey, here are six things, and maybe you could be a little optimistic about some of them, but more pessimistic. We're going we're gonna to get into it, continue this Jay's discussion with Kayla McGrath of The Athletic next on Jay's Talk Plus on Sports at 590, The Fan. The most opinionated Maple Leaf show out there. Real Kipper and Born. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. That lyric, only happy when it rains. Uh, The Jay's only chance of not losing right now if it were to rain. Although, as it were, in Miami, you'd still play ball. And in Toronto. So what am I doing with this intro? Not really sure. Let's bring in Caitlin McGrath so I can stop rambling. Uh, Caitlin McGrath of The Athletic joins us now. Caitlin, no rain here today. How is the quality of the track at Riverdale right now? It's pretty good. Yeah, it gets uh, when it's rainy, you can't go on there for a few days because it gets real muddy. But it's been uh, pretty good weather lately. So track is in good shape. I used to do, and this is several pounds ago. Uh, so for the people watching on sports at 360, I do not mean I've done this recently. Um, I used to run those Hills as part of like half marathon training for like a sprint mm-hmm. day or whatever. And if they got really muddy, although last time I was there a couple of weeks ago, just like walking through the park, is it, is there still like no grass at the park? Uh, there's, there's grass. Okay. It was, it was just not in good shape for a little while. Yeah, there. It's, it's not in great shape. Um, it's kind of, dead and yellowing and stuff like that it's uh yeah those hills are killer though I, I don't i've never been one for hill training i feel like too many repressed bad memories of cross-country running as a child makes me never want to do hills well uh another team that has a big hill to climb uh the toronto blue jays oh there we go i transitioned there i got us there caitlin um okay so you had a piece up at the athletic uh today it's great as always um but it, it is kind of kicking around hey are there some things to be optimistic about turning around are there some things to be pretty pessimistic about not turning around it's called state of the blue jays six reasons to be optimistic or pessimistic um first but we'll we'll get into the specific ones did was it hard to find like an even number of both i'm finding myself having more trouble with the optimistic side right now yeah i mean i guess so it was also hard to like uh pinpoint maybe the three most pessimistic (laughs) reasons i think that uh, I was trying to stick to more or less team-wide things. I know there was one particular one about Vlad, but he, to me, he's such a anchor of the team, and it feels like when he's going, the whole team is going. Um, but yeah, a little a little hard to narrow down um, the the pessimistic ones and and to try to find the silver lining. So the first 
one that you have laid out that's a possible reason for optimism is that the offense will eventually start to score. We've talked about it over the course of the weekend. They have the same number of hits and almost the same on-base percentage as the Texas Rangers. They've stranded more runners than anyone in baseball, um, etc. And obviously, at an individual level, a lot of players are underperforming right now. Um, I guess... You know, big picture, if we had a sample of 500 games, it's it, without question this offense will eventually start to score. Here as we near about the halfway point of the season, though, where is your, like, what is your, well, we'll go confidence index instead of concern index, so one to five here, that that actually will happen. Because in theory, it has to happen eventually. But in reality, you know, we're, we're looking at shorter and shorter windows here. So what is your confidence level that the offense actually will turn around and start scoring at the level that it needs to? I would say three. I mean, I was like, I was pretty confident, like late May, early June. I'm like, this is a team that usually gets, or I said early June. This is a team that gets hot in the summer. Typically. Like I, I remember last year and even the year before, like they've had some slow periods offensively. Um, particularly last year, I remember it was really slow in May. And then they kind of broke out towards the end of May, and it just kind of kept going. And obviously there was dry spells a little bit throughout the season, but generally speaking, they kind of got going when it was basically summertime or nearing summertime. And so I was kind of thinking that that was going to happen with this team, like it was going to be the same thing. And it really hasn't. Um, And, you know, not to say there's any real logic to like, well, they, you know, when it gets hot, they're going to start hitting. That's, you know, I just meant like maybe there's some patterns with this team, this club, it takes a little time, whatever. But I don't know. Like, I do think that logically when you think about it, like there's no reason why they should be worse with runners and scoring position. Like they're, you know, they're a good hitting team. George Springer is a good hitter. Bo Bichette's a good hitter. Actually, I know Bo Bichette's been one of the few that isn't really having trouble with runners in scoring position. He's just hitting all the time. But, you know, up oops, up and down the lineup, it's, um, you know, guys that know how to hit. And so it makes it doesn't really make sense that they're not doing it when guys are on base. So you think that eventually they're just going to start hitting. It's going to normalize. Now, I do think it's possible that maybe things are mounting a little bit and there is a bit of pressing, although the team hasn't really come out and said that. Um, But yeah, you look at guys like Chapman and, you know, Vlad and guys in the middle and it's just like, this is a prolonged slump for them now, like Chapman in particular, right? Like it's kind of incredible how good he was in May and just he's not really been able to come close to that level for now a month and a half. Yeah, and look, that's, uh, I mean, Chapman, I, I know the talking point at one point was like, well, it evened out, and like if he's an 800 OPS guy, but it is hard to like... I mean, the snapshot is what it is at this point in time, but it hasn't felt like there's a ton of confidence in Matt Chapman um, the last little while. So John Schneider spoke, was asked about this last night, and he, he talked about, you know, yeah, you string some hits together and basically, you know, continuing to say the same things about, you know, they have a lot of traffic on the bases. It's eventually going to happen. But he also kind of said, like, yeah, eventually a ball might leave the yard too. Um where I guess to contrast your your confidence level in, yeah, the runners in scoring position stuff is going to even out. It almost can't not. I, I even had, you know, whether you, you like the analytics side that says, no, this isn't a, a team level skill. Everyone almost eventually, almost everyone eventually evens out. Or you look at the more, you know, 
old school baseball side. Bobby Valentine was on my show last week and said, nah, I don't, I don't think it's a team wide skill. I think it's just noise. Um, so everyone seems to agree with that. Uh, the home run thing though, might be more that this team just doesn't have a ton of home run power as much as we thought. Uh, are you as confident that the power is going to start coming as, as you are that they'll eventually hit with runners in scoring position? Well, it, it, it comes down to some of those guys who you mm-hmm. rely upon to start hitting. Um, and it's all around like Vladdy, you know, you think you're going to get a certain amount of home runs from Vladdy. And it certainly looked like you were going to at the start of the year. He had five home runs in April. It's, you know, a pretty good start for him. He was hitting over 300. Um, you know, he was getting on base a ton, taking tons of walks. And he just has looked like a completely different hitter since then. I remember writing in April, maybe I'm jumping ahead a little bit around these um, talking points, but I remember writing in April, like this, this is the guy we saw in, uh, 2021 like this is the guy that was the MVP like he's doing exactly what he said he's going up there with a plan approach he's not swinging at bad pitches he's making guys come to him and the results were like pretty clear and it has not been like that um, you know at all since and you know I, I did mention he's got some minor injuries I think it's fair to wonder like is he maybe especially with the power like you know is there something with the knee or the, the wrist that is preventing him from hitting with as much power as we normally know he should be able to. And yeah, like, you know, Chapman, again, not hitting with as much power, not getting the home runs that you maybe expected. Um, Varsho actually kind of found his stroke a little bit. I think he's second in team home runs was probably about 12 or so. Um, I haven't looked at the numbers. George Springer, maybe not getting as many home runs. Like you can go up and down the lineup. And I think like, if the guys get going and they just start hitting, I'm sure the home runs will just kind of be a natural byproduct of the, that. But it kind of starts with, can you get Matt Chapman going? Um, you know, can you get George Springer going a little more? Like, can you get Vlad going? Like, um, I think it kind of starts with those guys. And then maybe the power just starts to come once they're just making good contact with the ball. So another item that you had in your article in terms of a a reason for optimism that we could kick around, whether it's truly a reason for optimism or maybe, uh, maybe tensing you up a little bit because there's in in my eyes, maybe a little sense of urgency now for the blue Jays to start, you know, playing better baseball is that the schedule is about to ease up. This Miami team is good. They're hot. You've got Yuri Perez tonight. And even if the ERA is up around five, I don't think anyone's going to feel good about being in there against Sandy Alcantara. Um, But after that, it's Oakland. San Francisco's pretty good. But then Boston, the White Sox, and Detroit. And if you look at the entire season schedule, you are not going to get a five-series run that's lighter than that for the Toronto Blue Jays. It just isn't going to happen for them this year. So how much, and by the way, the Jays are 21 and 28 against teams that are over 500. So they really have done a lot of their damage against those lesser teams when they've seen them so far this year. Um, Caitlin, what, what level of urgency are you feeling for, you know, this Blue Jays team? Maybe they don't have to figure it out and play their very best baseball over these next couple of weeks. But in a season where we've talked a lot about missed opportunities, you, you do kind of have to be playing pretty good baseball to take advantage of your lone softer stretch in the schedule, really. Yeah, I think so. I think there's a lot of urgency. I think there's, you know, a few reasons why they also got a good run of off days in this period, three off days um, kind of scattered about. So you can take advantage of those. That helps your pitching staff. Obviously a staff that looks pretty tired right now, not even having a fifth starter using the bullpen a lot. Um, so I think that combined with, 
the sort of weaker, quote-unquote, weaker competition that you'll be facing. Yes, still major league teams, but teams that you should be able to handle. Um, and then, you know, pair that with the off days and, and pair that with you're kind of staring down another large break with the All-Star break. Um, obviously, a few Blue Jays are probably going to be going to the All-Star game. Don't know who yet, but um, there's going to be a few of them there. And I think that getting on a roll, especially sort of entering the second half um, and entering the all-star break would be very good for this club. I think if you could kind of end the unofficial first half on a bit of a roll, um, maybe taking a few series in a row, and then you can kind of say, okay, it's almost a new season in the second half. We're going to play a lot better. I mean, they were a much better second half team last year. Uh, obviously they had some, you know, personnel changes uh there is that a really bad period in the second half and then they obviously fired their manager charlie matoyo brought in john schneider and then the team really did play a lot better um down the stretch so i think that there's probably a lot of reason to want to both just take advantage of that easier portion of your schedule as you said it's not going to get much easier for that prolonged time um, for the rest of the year, especially if you look at like their September, their September is going to be brutal in terms mm-hmm. of they're going to be playing for their playoff lives um, basically every single day. So you got to take advantage of this little chunk in June and July here. Um, and also just use it as a portion of the schedule where, yeah, you want to enter the second half on a high. You don't want to be stumbling to the all-star break and then trying to stumble out of it. I think you really want to be in a good place as good as you can get, whether that's, right in the wild card mix, um, you know, holding on to a spot, whatever it may be. I think you really want to use this portion of your schedule to get there. Caitlin, you'd mentioned the starting pitching rotation looking a little tired right now, obviously operating with only four guys. They do have a couple of off days coming up. In fact, enough off days between now and the all-star break that if they kept everyone on the tightest rest they, they possibly can. So that like, if the only goal was to minimize bullpen days, you could get to the all-star break only needing two more. But in one of your areas for pessimism, you said there's no fifth starter on the way. Uh, looking at even two more bullpen days between now and the All-Star break, that, that's pretty rough. And we're seeing the kind of rolling toll on the bullpen as you have, you know, if Bassett or Brios or Kikuchi have rough days as well. Is that an area that, you know, when, when you list that as a, as a cause for pessimism, is it one that you... Were you the front office that maybe you'd try to address instead of just waiting out? Yeah, I mean, you know, one, I think also like that I get the idea of using, you know, Richards and um, kind of pairing him with Bowden Francis. Like, I think that strategically that makes sense. And we've seen that combination kind of used. Um, to good effect, they haven't won either of those games, but I wouldn't necessarily pin it on those guys. Um, I think it's just really hard to win bullpen games. Um, it's just you know tough to get 27 outs from your bullpen, especially when you're you know you're using your bullpen every day. It's not like the other four guys are giving you complete games every time. So you never know like how the bullpen's going to look. I mean, I wonder if the team sometimes almost gets too cute with stuff like this. Like, okay, sure, try it with the bullpen day um, the first few times, see if it works. But 
I just wonder, like, at this point, you're not winning those games. You weren't winning those games with Alex Manoa. You're not winning those games with the bullpen day. What harm is it is just giving Bowden Francis the ball and letting him go six if he can do it or five or 75 pitchers, whatever you can do. Like, is that, are you really going to be worse off doing that? And then, you know, maybe you're not using Richards for three innings and, you know, maybe you're using him for less and then you can use him in another game. Cause I think they also have kind of handcuffed themselves with the sense that, you know, he's actually one of their best strikeout relievers. Um, and you know, he's, I know he's pretty good about rest and he can bounce back pretty quickly, but he goes three innings. He's not going to be able to pitch the next day and maybe not the next day either. So, um, you kind of have to balance that a little bit. And I sort of wonder, like at this point, should you just find a fifth starter in your organization, someone that can get close to it? I don't know. Um, I don't know if this plan is necessarily working and yeah, you can go out and trade for somebody, but um, that market's not going to develop until, you know, at least a month from now. And even then, it's usually more last minute than that. So um, you're looking more like closer to the trade deadline on August 1st. And then this is a team that, to be honest, like they, most of their talent is concentrated at the major league level, as it should be if you're a team trying to win right now. Um, yeah, I don't know how much spend they have, and I don't know what kind of thing, what they're going for. And so, um, I don't know. There's just so many questions of starting rotation. Then you also have to consider, like, what are you going to get from Hunjin Ryu? Can he just be thrown back in the rotation? Um, you know, what's he going to look like after Tommy John? Like, that's another question, too. When's he going to come back? Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I'm not I'm – not, um, I would say, like, it's a hard position the front office is in, um, figuring this out. And you didn't, you didn't bank on Alec Manoa not being available. At the same time, like – they knew their starting pitching depth was pretty thin and, you know, maybe you didn't predict an Alec Manoa sort of uh, having a, a tough season, but an injury could have happened and then they'd be in the same spot. So um, I'm kind of, I don't know, like I'm of the mind that maybe I would just try and go with a traditional starter at this point. Cause I'm not sure the bullpen day is even getting it done. No, it doesn't seem like, and, and like you said, there's a, there's a rolling cost to that of not having Trevor Richards available. And it's like, yeah, you, you on paper have one extra bullpen arm, but at least two of those guys are reserved for, uh, you know, for the, the long days. So I, I'm not, I, I don't know. I, I like Trevor Richards and, and those days haven't been as bad as we maybe thought or, and, and him and Bowden Francis are, are hanging in and doing a decent job. But yeah, I'm with you. It might be time. Like I should not be looking up Spencer Watkins fan graphs page a couple of times, just like, Hey, maybe I can find something in here. Um, there's some reason the guy who can't strike anyone out at triple a and just got DFA would by the Orioles at age 30. Uh, maybe there's something there. I shouldn't be having to do that uh, right now, Caitlin. Um, okay. So one, one other thing, that you mentioned we won't get to all six but uh, another thing you had pointed out and, and this was on the pessimism side is that brand of hey cleaner little things baseball that the Blue Jays had promised us this year and have shown for little stretches this is kind of twice now we've gone through an extended stretch of those things not happening what do you attribute that to is it like like obviously there's not some magic thing you can do to fix doing the little things well and maybe it's a a pressing thing the the pressure and guys trying to do too much but this is two pretty sustained stretches now where this team has played clumsy baseball that at times when they can't afford to give away runs have been giving away runs what do you attribute that to yeah it's hard to know like it's hard to know what is happening and and why that occurs i mean it's like this team for a couple of years now has kind of always just talked about being more consistent being more consistent um but they haven't been able to do it i mean 
you know, I know in years past, like they've felt the pressure of, um, you know, being a contender or wanting to be a World Series contender. And, um, you know, maybe there's an element of things kind of piling up on them, you know, realizing they're not where they want to be in the standings. And then, you know, they're ahead in a game and then uh, one mistake happens. And then, and then of course another, you know, mistake happens and then it starts to spiral and then guys get tight. And, um, you know, I think, yeah, I've heard people um, also kind of speculate, like, maybe the idea of playing perfect clean baseball sort of ha- just adds too much pressure and then you're like, ooh, like, I got to play perfect and then you, you don't play perfect mm-hmm. and then it kind of spirals. Like, I don't, it's hard to know. And some of it I think is just probably like if they were winning games and making a mistake, it's like, well, whatever, we're probably like not even writing about that mistake. I think we're probably noticing the lack of clean baseball because they're also losing those games. Um, and, you know, they're also not in a playoff spot and they're you know, 11 and a half games back of the division. So I think like everything is magnified right now. And that's something um, that probably contributes to it as well. And so, I'm, I'm sure that if you look at, you know, the Rays, for example, like the Rays probably are making some mistakes in their games, but it's not hurting them to the same extent. And maybe they didn't come into the season um, trying to make that their identity or whatever it may be. So, you know, you're not noticing as much. So I think it's probably a few things with Blue Jays. I think we're probably just noticing it more because like a lot of things haven't gone, gone right for them. You know, Vlad's not hitting the way he should be. Um, Noah's not even in the majors anymore. Like a lot of things have gone wrong. And then we are also able to say, oh, and they're giving away outs on the bases too often. You know, they're leaving way too many guys on base. Um, they're making errors. They're a great defensive team, but they could be even better if they didn't make so many errors. Like, I think that there's probably an element of, like, we're pointing to these flaws um, because the team just, like, hasn't been playing, um, you know, very good, and they haven't been getting away with any of those mistakes uh, because if they were hitting the ball over the fence a ton, maybe they get away with some of those mistakes. All right, Caitlin, let's end on a positive here. And the Blue Jays are back home later this week, which means you you get to go in, you get to carve out some feature time maybe. We'll see how it goes. Not only is Tyler Heineman back keeping that option on the table for you that we've discussed before, but I got to imagine there's an Ernie Clement pitching story in there somewhere as well now that he's done it three times and looked okay yesterday. Um you know, obviously I'm being tongue in cheek here, but excited to have the the team back here. And, and hey, if they're playing well, there's a, a little bit more space for some of the kind of fun side stories like that. Yes. I mean, I it's I feel like I've covered the same Jay season, like maybe three years in a row. Where, I think you have. Where it's like they are, they sometimes they play really well and you're like, okay, things are good. The vibes are good right now. I'm going to fire off some of these fun stories and then it's like oh let's hold these stories right now because the team is in a spiral and we gotta we gotta write like a concern index right now (laughs) or like we gotta like figure out are they going to you know fire are they going to make a big trade like what's going to happen how do they shake things up and so um yes i would love to write a story on tyler hanneman being a magician in the off season it's you you guys don't know how much i just want to write that but uh <laughs> but um you know probably the more pressing story is when is kirk going to come back and can the blue jays afford to lose kirk from their lineup for a week or whatever it may be or like when brand when is brandon belt coming back i mean can you like imagine where we are like april people were ready to just ship brandon belt out of here and then now it's like he was the 
straw that stirred the drink for the Blue Jays. Like, they're really missing him in their lineup, and they're all of a sudden not able to score runs when he's not hitting third. Yeah, and they've called up Spencer Horwitz, who, like, has had two nice games. But, hey, uh, you have two first basemen who can't hit for power right now, and you call up another one. Uh, it's uh, it's a bit of an odd spot, Caitlin. I uh, appreciate you taking the time out this morning, and uh, see you down at the park this weekend. Awesome. Thank you. Caitlin McGrath of The Athletic. Again, you can go check that piece out at The Athletic with all of Caitlin's great work. That one was State of the Blue Jays, Six Reasons to be Optimistic or pessimistic. She also had the breakdown of the the trickle-down effect of Alejandro Kirk uh, going on the IL. And again, that's expected to be something close to the minimum IL stint because... You know, it's not, it, there's no structural damage there, but he did get, he did require stitches on that hand. So uh, the Jays looked at it and, hey, he's going to need four or five days for the stitches to heal before he can hold a bat and swing again. May as well get him on the IL. He'd also, probably also not the worst thing from a, a load management perspective because he played an awful lot of baseball with Danny Jansen uh, on the IL there. So Heineman's up. Um, yesterday, we also saw Bowden Francis go down, Trent Thornton come up for uh, fresh length. He pitched two innings yesterday. The Bowden Francis thing is interesting because, yes, if they're doing bullpen days, he's probably a part of that. The next one doesn't project to be until July 1st, depending on how the Jays structure the rotation. Um, Yes, there's the minimum amount of time that you must spend in the minors. But as Dan Schulman says, things have a way of working themselves out, like the Adam Simber uh, parental leave. Zach Pop, by the way, is going to throw... A rehab inning at AAA tomorrow. He threw one on the weekend, and despite allowing a base runner, got in and out of it with six pitches. So uh, nice and efficient there. He's another name that could sometime soon potentially be added back to this bullpen. Uh, Chad Green is going to throw live bullpen a live bullpen session today. Uh, Hyunjin Ryu is scheduled to throw a two-inning live bullpen session on Thursday. And Alec Manoa uh, had a side session yesterday and is due for a simulated game tomorrow. Then, assuming that continues to go well, he did a 75-pitch, five-inning simulated game on the weekend. Uh, They're going to up the pitch count in this one, and then from there, potentially uh, get him into some game action. Those updates come from John Schneider, but via Arden Zwelling of Sportsnet at Sportsnet.ca, who is down there providing us those updates. We're going to take a break. I'm going to set up tonight's matchup between Yusei Kikuchi, who's had some fun moments, certainly this year, some fun outings, and Yuri Perez, the youngest pitcher in baseball who throws 97 and his fastball might be his fourth best pitch. Pretty ridiculous stuff. Christina DeNicola of Marlins.com joins us next as Jay's Talk Plus continues on Sports at 590 The Fan and Sports at 360. Smart takes on the biggest stories in sports. The Fan Drive Time with Ben Ennis. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Looking like it might be a cruel summer for your Toronto Blue Jays. Not so for the Miami Marlins. Christina DeNicola of Marlins.com of MLB.com joins us now. Christina, I got to ask, first of all, I haven't gotten to go. The Eras Tour has not come to Toronto yet. How was seeing Taylor Swift? It was, uh, first of all, thanks for having me. Uh, it was a lot of fun. I actually uh, did a road trip uh, to Tampa because she did shows there and not in Miami, but it was great. And um, I heard that she's going to make Cruel Summer a uh, single finally, which she should have done years ago. So I'm very happy <laughs> about that. 
Excellent. Um, so it has been, you know, Taylor Swift concert, uh, Florida Panthers going to the NHL finals, um, the Miami Heat going to the NBA finals, the Miami Marlins being as exciting as they are now and off to this terrific start. It's been a pretty fun time for uh, Florida and South Florida sports specifically right now. When you are around this Miami Marlins team, can you kind of feel that like, like that there is a bit of a, a moment right now, not dissimilar to when Tampa had that stretch with, with the lightning and the Buccaneers a couple years ago? No, absolutely. And I think it starts with the new manager, Skip Schumacher from the first day at spring training. It just had a different vibe to it. Um, whether it was, you know, bringing in Luis Arias, or, you know, at some point, you know, in March, they had a Yuli Gurriel show up. So a lot of winners uh, were brought to the team. They have this kind of vibe that makes it feel different. Uh, there's been times during the season where they might be down or, you know, just like, okay, here we go again. You know, this is where the losing starts or this play is going to make, you know, things go a certain way and they surprise you. And it just has that different feeling to it this year. It really does. I'm curious uh, about Skip Schumacher. Obviously, there is a, a, you know, a huge component of the manager's job, especially with a team that, you know, is maybe a little younger and wasn't necessarily expecting to compete just yet. A lot of it is culture setting and tone setting and things like that. This team also has a very good record in one run games uh, and close games in general. What have you made of the job that Skip Schumacher has done from a, you know, the more tactical side of the managerial side? Because the, the, the vibe side, the culture side is obviously going very well. Um, the actual, you know, on-field management, he seems to be pretty uh, adept at it as well. Definitely. And I think from what I had heard when he came in was he was sort of the brains, not that's, you know, I mean to say behind the operation in St. Louis, but he was definitely Ali Marmol's like right-hand man. He was very organized and whatnot as a bench coach for the Cardinals, but he he's quick to uh, credit the whole staff that they brought in, especially the hitting staff. There's uh, Brant Brown and then two assistant coaches, uh, and that, and then bringing back pitching coach Mel Stoudemire Jr., who's worked wonders since he's come to Miami, uh, and just relying on everyone there. It's not just him, but with those one-run games, it's interesting because last year they had the most in decades. I think it was 41-run losses, and this year it's completely flipped. And sometimes it could be, you know, whether the bullpen additions they brought in or maybe getting the clutch hit that, that they did in last year. It's interesting to see it. It kind of reminds me of the Seattle Mariners of what last year, the year before, and then this year they've kind of flipped the record for them. And that's part of the reason why I guess they're not above 500. Yeah. Uh, so we'll see how it plays out for the next few months. And it makes you wonder, does the manager have a skill? Is the bullpen just particularly good? Or is there some level of, you know, that chemistry carryover and belief in the room and things like that? Um, it, so Christina, last night in writing about this Marlins team, you know, this is the best, record they've had through 72 games since the 1997 world series version of the Marlins. And the last time they were 11 games over 500 and you included this note in your piece. And I'm wondering how many times you had to like quadruple check it to make sure it was accurate. The last time the Marlins were this far over 500, Yuri Perez, who will start tonight was six years old. Yeah. He uh, makes the rest of us feel very, very old. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was in 2009. Uh, I think I was probably a sophomore, maybe a junior in college. So it just kind of puts in perspective, I guess, how long ago that was. They were the Florida Marlins. They were playing at the football stadium where the Miami Dolphins uh, still are. Uh, they had, you know, a different uniform. It's just mm. kind of shows how, I guess, you know, much turnover, whether it was the coaching staff, the personnel, you know, the players just, not being able to get it done. I mean, look, that's what 
three, four years before the big uh, blockbuster trade between the Marlins and the Blue Jays. Yeah. <laughs> From yesteryear, yeah. So I guess, you know, I know they brought back the kind of throwback jersey with with the cool colored hat and everything. They also accidentally brought back the very good teams from from that era as well. Um, So driving force in this Marlins team, and, and there are a lot of things going well, but we saw a big one last night. Luisa Rice has a five-hit game. It's only the 38th time in Blue Jays history that's been done to them. It's the third time already this year Luisa Rice has done it. The MLB record is four. Or how fascinating has it been for you to get to cover Luisa Rise's season day to day so far? And, you know, we're, we're further along than we probably ever could have expected in a chase for 400. Yeah, I mean, it's truly amazing because, first of all, you know, he switched leagues. You'd think there'd be an adjustment period in order to know the pitchers, how they're going to attack them and whatnot. That hasn't been the case. Uh, last week in Seattle, where I was helping, you know, cover the team. He had an 0 for 15, like, stretch, and then he dipped to 378, and we're like, oh, here we go. There goes for the 400. And then, <laughs> since then, he's gone, what, 11 for 14. It's truly incredible. It's just the way that baseball's played, you know, in this generation, you don't see 400 or even remotely close, and that's what makes it truly remarkable. And I remember, you know, part of the thing over the offseason, Kim Ng, uh, the general manager, said is she wanted to get, you know, contact-oriented bats, someone that could be a table setter towards the top of the lineup. And so, you know, they had that pitching surplus and they traded Pablo Lopez in January to the twins for Arias, who at the time, I guess, Minnesota thought he didn't really have a defensive position like, oh, you know, sell him high. And uh, as of now, you know, the Marlins definitely aren't regretting it. Certainly not. And, you know, part of what's gone into the the high batting average is, yeah, there's a little bit of up and down and, and you know, variance in there. But Luis Rise also leads the league in line drive rate. Thirty percent of his batted balls are line drives for any Blue Jays fan who wants to contextualize that. The next two up on the major league leaderboard are Whit Merrifield and Bo Bichette, who are both hitting over 300 for this Blue Jays team. So we see how, you know, that line drive approach really works you can't really defend against a line drive that lands halfway between the second baseman uh, and the right fielder within that though how impressed are you in Arise's ability to be doing this you know you, you there's you look at the book on him and you could go fastball you go breaking ball you can go off speed you could try to play him to you know force him into a pull hitter you could try to work the outside and he goes the other way there's almost there aren't no holes. Every hitter has a, a little bit of a hole here and there, but there really doesn't seem to be a good way to pitch to Luisa rise right now that he can't do damage. Um, I, I'd imagine there's a frustration component for uh, the, the pitchers facing him. How, I mean, I don't even know what question to ask off of that other than, you know, you as a baseball fan and someone who's covered the, the team a lot. Um, like how uncommon is that? And how uncanny is it to see it day to day up close? Well, it's really uncommon. I mean, we keep on asking. It seems like broken record. Uh, Skip Schumacher every day. And he goes, like, I've run out of words. You know, he's brought up, obviously, this is not a stretch, but you're talking about a late Hall of Famer. But Tony Gwynn came to mind for him several times. It just Arise's ability to manipulate the barrel. He just honestly, it's almost like he can direct the ball where he wants it to go. And you mentioned those line drives, you know, in between, let's say, the second baseman and the right field or whatever. These are hard-hit balls. It's not like... He's getting ground balls through the, you know, no more shift type of thing. Uh, he's even actually had a few hits robbed of him because you've got literally shortstop and second baseman sometimes are playing as close to second base. You know, you were always taught to hit up the middle. Um, it's just, it's truly incredible. Just his ability to 
kind of decide where he wants to hit the ball. Like, huh, let me go to left field this time. Let me go. He, they call him the sprinkler, uh, <laughs> regadera, which is in Spanish. Uh, and it's true. He just sprays hits across the field. And he's still just 26. So the potential to get even better there as he, you know, continues to learn the game and continues to have success. Um, 26, young for most baseball players. It makes him far the senior of Yuri Perez, who we'll see tonight. Barely 20 years old. He's come up. He's made seven major league starts so far. A 180 ERA. This booming 97, 98 mile an hour fastball. A couple of breaking balls. A changeup. Um, what has the Yuri Perez experience been? like so far and while i know the 180 era maybe isn't going to maintain uh, a guy who you know probably ahead of schedule here at age 20 now seems like uh you know he's going to be a mainstay in this marlins rotation yeah so i actually spent two months uh talking with him and his family for a big piece from lb.com leading up to his uh very abrupt, like sudden, like, oh, he's getting called up uh, story. But he basically is like a baby Sandy Alcantara, which uh, is a great thing for Marlins fans, considering, you know, he's the reigning Cy Young winner. But he, uh, similar arsenal, he's actually three inches taller than Sandy, which is, uh, you know, you don't see often. He's literally 6'8". Um, he, he, yeah, he's ahead of schedule to an extent, but he's always been very precocious. Immature, what's truly remarkable though, is like he didn't start playing organized baseball in the Dominican until he was 11 when he asked his mom for his birthday, Hey, can you take me to a league? And it's kind of been on the fast track ever since. He, uh, what will be interesting for the Marlins moving forward if they continue staying in, you know, the playoff picture is a lot of their pitchers have like innings that are coming up on career highs already, mm. and Yuri's one of them. So they, as of now, have three fifths of their rotation on the injured list. So ideally, I guess you get some of them back, Johnny Cueto, Edward Cabrera, uh, Trevor Rogers back, and then maybe some of those guys that are currently pitching take a break. And Yuri will definitely be one of them because he's already very, very close to his career innings. That's why he kind of only goes five each start. Last time out in Seattle, he actually got to go cry six because he was very efficient. But they're being very careful with him because he's such a young arm. Like he was literally a teenager, what, two months ago. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, he's, uh, you know, the last time the Marlins made the playoffs in a full season was 2003. And uh, there's a 20-year-old who got promoted from double-A then as well, and it was Dontrell Willis. So, uh, you know, we'll see if history repeats itself. Yeah, and, uh, geez, hearing Yuri Perez didn't start until 11. He's six foot eight. Maybe they should have nudged him to basketball, too. Could have been a, a two-sport um, dominance there. And no, that's that's great. Um that's great context there with Perez's, you know, not only is he super young, but he also lost his, what would have been his first pro season to the pandemic. So, you know, 78 and 77 innings each of the last two years, something to watch. Now, in terms of the Marlins potentially fortifying that rotation, injuries will play some element in it, but I know that you, um, you have recently talked about two speaking with Kim Ng, the general manager there, and her sounding maybe a little more open to being a buyer than, than maybe we would have expected coming into the year. Is that the feeling you get from speaking with Kim Ng? Definitely, especially if they keep tracking this way and the Mets keep underperforming. The Phillies obviously have kind of woken up from their World Series hangover, but yeah, I mean, what this team is probably missing is another bat. And, you know, you're not just talking about maybe like a complimentary piece, but ideally a guy that will help, you know, so that the pressure is not always on Jorge Soler. You know, at some point soon, uh, Jazz Chisholm Jr. should be back. He's going to start a rehab assignment. But, yeah, when we spoke to Kim Ang, I want to say a couple of weeks ago, before they even, you know, they're at the beginning of this really, really hot stretch, it was like another big bat. 
would be what they'd be looking for. And, you know, from there, we'll see what happens. You know, it's a, that's what Skip Schumacher says. It's a, you know, it's great that they're 11 games over, but, you know, it's a long season. You know, you're playing into October, so so much can happen until then. But, yeah, I think with any team, right, if you make a buying move, that just boosts the clubhouse usually. You know, it shows that you're in it for real and that you, you have faith in the guys there and you're just bringing someone else in to help support them. It's maybe a little too early for this question, given that he just kind of got back on the field and he's still, I believe he's still rehabbing at a ball, but Jake Eater was a name that I, I know you'd mentioned before as someone who could have some, I guess, velocity through them, like up, like moving quickly through that system. Um, is he someone who would be on the 2023 radar to help this either weather rotation or, or bullpen, or is that too many steps away for him still? Honestly, anything's possible to me, especially with the way this team has been in 2023. Um, Because as I had mentioned, yeah, and that I guess minor league report a couple weeks ago, is he was on track to be, you know, making his debut before Max Meyer, uh, who was also drafted that same year in 2020, I believe, or Yuri Perez. He was one of the top guys at the Sirius XM, you know, All-Star Futures game a couple years ago. And then he had the Tommy John. He's making his way back. Obviously, we see guys who come back for Tommy John. It kind of takes them a bit to get back in the swing of things. But, you know, as I mentioned, with the different innings limits and stuff for guys, he could be a potential guy rather than maybe a triple-A depth piece, you know. Uh, But we'll have to see how he progresses. But he could be an interesting name, even, like you said, out of the bullpen. Of course, the Marlins, as of now, have, I believe, four lefties that are all high leverage in the bullpen, which you don't see really ever. Uh, and Jake Eater is a lefty, but that's definitely another name to be on the lookout for as the season progresses. He could be one of those guys. He's not on the 40-man, though, so mm. they would have to make some space. But, yeah, he he would definitely be more so than a guy like Sixto Sanchez, who unfortunately just keeps having step back after step back with his right shoulder. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's been unfortunate. Um, Christina, before we let you go here, it's a day early for this one, but you did mention Sandy Alcantara um, being a a, uh, a Yuri Perez comp. We're going to see him tomorrow. Um, the story's been well told about, about you know his season not going that well, but internally, is there a feeling that that he's getting close to rounding the corner and figuring that out? Well, that's what they've, you know, after every start, it almost seems like he has that one big inning that gets to him. And so, you know, there's, you know, at least what they're telling us publicly is, you know, he's basically the same pitcher. It's just that one inning that wasn't necessarily the case last year. Uh, but he's definitely, like in his last start in D.C., I think he elevated pitches. And that's, not, you know, not in a good way where it's, you know, guys chasing, but more like toward the heart of the zone. But he just, you know, if you had told anybody before the season started that he wouldn't be pitching as their best pitcher, it might be like a Braxton Garrett or Jesus Lazardo or Yuri Prez. People probably would have done a double take. But <laughs> I guess Toronto's a perfect example, right? Alex Manoa, who would have thought that would come? Dylan Cease in Chicago. I know Zach Wheeler and Aaron Nola didn't get off to great starts with the Phillies this year. It's just, it's been a very strange year for like the aces of different starting staffs. But, you know, with the kind of stuff that Sandy has, I mean, you assume he'll flip it around, and it is a long season. He's got plenty of time to get there. He's still giving them usually six to seven innings, and that's honestly what they need the most considering the you know innings limits that the other pitchers have. Yeah, and it makes for a fascinating second half of the season here where there are a, a number of you know, established pitchers you might think will have turnarounds. We just hope here in Toronto, given how tough things have been for the Blue Jays lately, that that Sandy's turnaround is one start from now and not this upcoming <laughs> one. Uh, Christina DeNicola, Marlins.com, MLB.com. Thanks so much for taking the time out this morning. I really appreciate it. No, thanks for having me.
Christina DeNicola, Marlins.com, MLB.com. Again, it's Yuri Perez against Yusei Kikuchi tonight. Uh, Perez is this fascinating. Not only is he six foot, not only is he six foot eight, he's got great extension down the mound as well. And he throws 97, 98. So those are all factors that can help a fastball play up. The fact that he's tall and releasing close to the mound, the fact that he's getting a long stride down the mound. And then, yeah, it's also 97 on top of everything else. And oh, by the way, it might be his least effective pitch. He's got a slider. He throws 25% of the time that opponents have swung and missed at 38% of the time, a curveball he mixes in there that has a zero. 0-5-0 batting average against this year and has a whiff rate up around 60% and a changeup that he mostly uses to neutralize lefties that has not allowed a single hit yet in 70 pitches. So fascinating kid there. Obviously do some regression from a 180 ERA, but as we've seen with the Blue Jays against the Texas Rangers and just in general lately, they are not the engines of regression. So I don't know that that's coming there. You say Kikuchi will go on the other side, the owner of a 431 ERA. You know the story. Strikeouts down, walks also down, allows the most home runs in Major League Baseball so far. Jorge Soler in his 21 home runs, licking his chops at that one. The Jays need length at a Kikuchi after a couple of heavy bullpen days. Blair and Barker are back at 5 o'clock. Jeff Blair back off his, his little time off. Uh, they'll have you for Blair and Barker 5 to 6.30, as well as they're back in the Jays talk slot uh, for post-game breakdown as well. Jay's Talk Plus returns 10 a.m. tomorrow, and it's a noon start, so we'll roll right into the game. Uh, thank you to Ben Wagner, to Lance Prozdowski, to Caitlin McGrath, and Christina DeNicola for coming on. Thanks to Jeff, Lance, and Jennifer behind the glass. It's Jay's Talk Plus back 10 a.m. tomorrow. It can't be worse than 11 nothing to break down, but it can. Hope not. See you tomorrow on Sports at 590 The Fan and Sports at 360.